This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing good. I, I, I'm excited. We've got some really good questions today. Okay, so then let's not waste any time. <laughs> and let's uh, get going with neurology question number six. In evaluating a term newborn, the neonatologist observes bilateral leukocoria. Mm. Okay. There is no evidence of hepatosplenomegaly, microcephaly, IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction, or congenital heart disease. Audiologic evaluation reveals a severe hearing impairment. Of the following, the congenital infection that is most likely responsible for the findings in this infant is choice A, cytomegalovirus, CMV, choice B, rubella, choice C, syphilis, choice D, toxoplasmosis, choice E, varicella. Okay, so torch infections was always my favorite lecture to give <laughs> to residents. And uh, when I was chief resident, we had a whole torch jeopardy. So anyways, I know- so You got I it right. You got the question right. Is that I got the question right to? is what I'm telling you. So, so what they're asking for. So this is a baby who has bilateral leukocoria. So this baby has basically congenital cataracts and severe hearing impairment. So obviously the torch infections overlap significantly, but we need one that has cataracts and pretty significant um, hearing impairment, but really lack of any other findings um, all at the same time. So um, CMV, you know, I, I, certainly deafness or hearing impairment is a problem with CMV, but they don't tend to have cataracts. Uh, rubella, I mean, the answer is rubella. This this baby has cataracts and severe hearing impairment. Um, and I'm sure you'll tell us more about rubella in a second. Um, syphilis doesn't actually tend to have hearing impairment or cataracts. Um, toxoplasmosis either. Um, and, and same thing, uh, with varicella, they have ocular findings, but it's not cataracts. You are correct. So for the audience who hasn't figured out our process, we sort of know before we record which, <laughs> which questions are going to be asked to you or you're going to have to explain the answers to. So I knew beforehand that Daphna was going to answer this question and that was going to give the answer. And I prepped a little spiel about like, what do we need to learn about this question? But then Daphna surprises me with like, this is my field of expertise. And now I'm stressing out because I have like five little tidbits about <laughs> congenital rubella. No, tell us the tidbits. Fine. Um, I think what you, what you glossed over um, and may seem obvious to you is what was the biggest uh, pearl for me was that leukocoria should make you think of cataracts, right? Right. Um, I think that this, this leap is something that's very critical because once you you translate that from, all right, bilateral leukocoria, most likely the reason is bilateral cataract. Then you have, as you said, cataract plus hearing impairment, and you can easily sort through the different syndromes. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there are 
other reasons why you could have leukocoria, right? So leukocoria mm -hmm. is when you try to get basically your red reflex and you see white. That's There's right. all these cool stories about like people posting family pictures on Facebook mm. and then some, some pediatrician, ophthalmologist saying, hey, like one of your kids has an eye problem, go to the doctor. Some people like actually saving other people's lives thanks to yeah, that. Yeah, retinoblastoma picked up. Exactly. So retinoblastoma yeah. is another uh, reason, uh, is another differential for the diagnosis of, uh, for the presentation of leukocoria. Cataract, however, remains the most common. So we have, we've talked about cataract, retinoblastoma, other things, obviously, colobomas, retinopathy of prematurity, retinal detachment, and vitreous hemorrhage also could cause leukocoria. So these are, these are some of the, of the differentials for leukocoria. The red reflex starts happening around 28 weeks of gestation. I think it's another valuable piece of information uh, when it comes to that. And okay, so we have cataract and we have uh, hearing impairment. Now, once we know these things, um, we should be able to eliminate a lot of the different uh, choices. You mentioned varicella right away. It's the last choice. It's not a possible answer because congenital varicella is unlikely to produce cataracts. So easy. However, we have CMV and toxo. And those are tricky because like you said, CMV and toxoplasmosis can have hearing impairment. So how do you differentiate? Well, you have to remember that CMV and toxoplasmosis have chorioretinitis, mm -hmm. not cataracts. So if you remember that, that CMV and toxo have chorioretinitis, um, then that should be able to eliminate. They both have T's in it, cytomegalovirus, toxoplasmosis, and chorioretinitis. There's lots of T's there. Yeah, and I actually, uh, I feel like CMV and toxo have a lot of similarities. So it it makes sense to me that they have the same eye finding. Okay. Um, syphilis has no hearing impairment. So um, syphilis was not an option just because of the very fact that um, this would not be associated with any hearing impairment. So then you're left with rubella and rubella makes sense, right? So rubella, um, congenital rubella syndrome really is something that can be acquired during the pregnancy. There's like this bimodal type of curve where you can acquire rubella either really early on in pregnancy or quite late in the pregnancy. Um, hearing loss is one of the hallmarks of congenital rubella syndrome. And that's very prevalent if the mother acquires uh, rubella early in the pregnancy, like before 20 weeks of gestation. The babies will have uh, a lot of uh, other findings like microcephaly, um, cataracts, obviously, as we've mentioned, they have this typical blueberry muffin rash. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they have uh, cardiac findings. Do you remember what the typical cardiac finding of congenital rubella syndrome is? Uh, they can have uh, mostly PDAs and VSDs. That's right. So the PDA, that's the question of, mm -hmm. I remember seeing either during my prep or on the exam where they, they can't, they kind of like asking that as well. And they have mm -hmm. this celery stock bone meta, meta, mm. meta, metaphysis, metaphysis. Um, and so on x-ray, yeah. So like their bones have like this very streaky uh, distal end and it looks like a celery stock. So yeah, so this is a little bit of a review. Uh, rubella is, an, is, a, is a RNA uh, virus and it leads to obviously uh, intrauterine growth restriction as we've seen in this baby. Um, they can have low platelet symbolic anemia, but really the hallmarks are microcephaly, hearing loss, cataracts, PDA, bone mal uh, malformations, and uh, yeah. All right, Daphne, you're next. Okay. Um, question eight. Retinopathy of prematurity, ROP, is the leading neonatal cause of blindness in the United States. 
of the following, the population at greatest risk for severe ROP consists of infants who A, are born extremely prematurely, B, requiring prolonged assisted ventilation, C, are treated with prolonged period of parenteral D, with a family history of myopia, or E, with a, with a history of severe intraventricular hemorrhage? <clears throat> yeah, I thought this was a very easy question, which meant that when it's that easy, I tend to, to create problems for myself. Because obviously, yeah. <laughs> my first guess was that the greatest risk for severe ROP is being extremely premature. Um, I know there's this inverse relationship between gestational age and ROP. But then you start looking at the other choices and you can rationalize them, right? So B was requiring prolonged assisted ventilation. And you're like, well, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So the key is that requiring prolonged assisted ventilation doesn't mean that you're always on high oxygen. We know that oxygen is the other major risk factor for ROP. So that's not really what they said. So I, I was comfortable saying no to this one. Uh, treated with, pre, pre, with prolonged period of parenteral nutrition. I didn't remember that being a, a, a great risk factor for ROP. The family history of myopia, to be honest with you, I have, I have no idea what, whether that's true or not. I had not heard that before. And then this history of severe IVH, again, um, it's, this is where you can really confuse yourself. Like right. there is data that shows that if you are really sick and the, the, the risk severity scores are associated with worse ROP and so on and so forth. But again, they're asking you the greatest risk factor. So mm -hmm. I, I just like tamed all these, <laughs> all these other voices and just said, born extremely prematurely. Yeah. So is the right answer, born extremely prematurely. But I think you brought up a few good points. So we just had to do this with my, with my daughter the other day. She, she's got to answer B. She felt like answer B was the right answer. She said, that's the right answer. And I said, well, we should, even when we're pretty sure we should look at all of the answer choices because yeah. you never know. Right. And so I thought that was really um, important. And yeah, there are a variety of answer choices here where you're like, hmm, could it be? <laughs> That's right. So just a brief review on ROP. So ROP affects 20 to 50% of all patients with a birth weight less than 1,500 grams. And as all of you have experienced in your units, that the current recommendations are to screen all infants born below 32 weeks gestation or again, a birth weight less than, less than or equal to 1500 grams. Um, and then there are certainly babies who may have a bigger gestational age or a greater weight at delivery, um, but have a really unstable clinical course um, that could be included, included in screening. So screening for ROP um, really depends on the gestational age at birth, but in general, screening should occur between um, 31 to 32 weeks post-menstrual age um, or four weeks uh, postnatal age, whichever one is later. Um, so for example, for a baby born at 24 or 25 weeks, um, they'd be screened at 31 weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. For a 31-weeker, they would be screened at 35 weeks. And so this um, frequently comes up as a question. So should occur either four to six weeks postnatal age or the um, uh, postmenstrual age of 31 to 32 weeks, whichever one comes later. 
And like you said, it's really this um, being born extremely prematurely is the greatest is the greatest risk factor. And second to that is exposure to very high concentrations of oxygen for a very long time, um, which increases the risk significantly. Severe IVH is associated with it, but is not one of the major risk factors. Severe IVH. See, this is how I get tripped up because that little association. <laughs> yeah. And it makes sense, right? Because probably a lot of babies with severe IVH need a lot of oxygen, you know? So there's, there's something there. Be, the younger babies tend to have more, more severe IVH. So I agree. I had to think twice about this question. But severe IVH, need for TPN, and family history of myopia do not alter the risk. Moving on. All right, Daphna, neurology question number nine. The most common outcome in a very low birth weight infant with cystic periventricular leukomalacia, PVL, is choice A, attention deficit hypersens uh, hypersens hypersensitivity disorder, ADHD, B, major vision impairment, C, sensory neural hearing loss, D, spastic diplegia. So um, all of these are potential um, neurodevelopmental problems of preterm infants. Mm -hmm. But the question is specifically asking about cystic PVL. Um, and we know that, again, PVL is right around the ventricles. It tends to affect the motor tracts um, specifically. Um, and so if you can remember that, um, then it's, it's easy to pick the right answer, spastic diplegia. Um, I think the question could have been more confusing if they asked which type of cerebral palsy, um, but, but the answers for this question is spastic diplegia. Yeah, we knew that Daphne's neurodevelopment and uh, neurology sort of background was going to, she's crushing it. Uh, <laughs> it came in handy. Uh-huh. The answer is D, spastic diplegia. So, um, yes, the answer is D, spastic diplegia. Let's, you, you've talked a bit about PVL, and there's some significant risk factors for developing PVL, being preterm, born less than 32 weeks, um, like any type of severe illness, having a history of IVH, uh, any type of maternal slash fetal infection, a history of hypoxia. All these are, are significant risk factors for PVL. Now, why is prematurity a risk factor, right? We know about IVH and we know about the germinal matrix, but there's some anatomic factors. There's the idea that cerebral uh, blood pressure is dependent on systemic blood pressure. So that also makes sense. Um, there's this vulnerability of actively differentiating or myelinating glial cells and any type of vascular slash uh, inflammatory insult. Now, how do you know what the long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes are? And it could be tricky because the outcomes for, for, for cystic PVL are spastic diplegia, as, we, as we've mentioned, but there's also associated cognitive deficits and visual deficits. So this is where the question can be a bit tricky, mm -hmm. where um, they do mention vis major vision impairment, mm -hmm. which technically is also a complication that is well known for, for cystic PVL. However, uh, spastic diplegia is the number one uh, the, uh, most common outcome. And actually, more specifically, uh, the lower extremities are actually affected more than the upper extremity. And that really has to do with the location of the insult usually being very close to the parasagittal cerebral um, sinus 
and where really the deeper medial fiber tracts are. And if you remember like your, what was it called again in medical school? The, the, the homunculus? The homunculus, that's exactly Yeah, so the right. homunculus, like the legs are like in the- Yeah, in he the, leans over the- Exactly. <laughs> and so that's really why the, the legs are usually more mm -hmm. affected. It's just because of the location of the uh, cystic PVL injuries that we see commonly in, in neonates. So yeah, so that was, uh, that was the answer. Okay, question 10. So a mother brings her one-month-old infant to the pediatrician. Everybody's nervous already, I can tell. She's curious about the expected stages of language development for her baby. Of the following, which stage of language development typically begins at approximately age five to seven months, and if not present by a suggests suggests a hearing deficit? A, cooing. B, babbling. C, echolalia. D, jargon. Or E, vocal play. This one, this one I feel comfortable with. I did okay. a lot of high-risk pediatrics of, yeah. and I did a lot of neurodevelopmental clinic follow-up. So I knew all the answer choices. <laughs> awesome. That was a great start. Uh, so um, yeah, so five to seven months, I picked uh, babbling, um, which is choice B. I know that cooing is just like making uh, really minimal sounds. That's usually like what happens around like one to six months. Echolalia is just repeating sounds, and that's something that comes after babbling. Uh, and obviously, jargon and vocal play is much later. So uh, five to seven months babbling, that was my answer. Yeah, so cooing, um, like you said, really happens between age one to six months. You know, as babies are saying, ooh, ah, they, were, they will um, uh, do that all day long. They're really just starting to find the voice. Uh, right. That's what people say about it. And then vocal play tends to occur between four to six months where they're just doing increased variations on cooing. And then, like you said, babbling occurs between five to seven months. That's when we really start to hear um, specific phonemes, specifically, you know, P's, B's, M's, and then groups of sounds develop a little bit later, uh, like ta-ta or dada, mm -hmm. um, between eight to 10 months. And then jargon, the way I remember jargon is basically they have, they're babbling, but they have listened enough time to people around them speaking in sentences. So they babble and it sounds like sentences, but maybe in a different language. So it's, they have these intonations as if they were forming nonsensical sentences, which I think is freaking adorable. And then anyways, echolalia really happens much later. So echolalia is a repetition of sound. So you say sound and they uh, repeat a sound uh, or they will continue repeating sounds um, to themselves. That really doesn't happen until about 15 to 18 months. So vocal play is actually not that, I, I was, I, I, miss, yeah. I missed that one then. I know. I, that's, I'm actually not that familiar with this term vocal play, but so I, it's earlier so it's basically vocal play between is just, cooing and babbling between cooing and babbling so it, interesting i didn't mm -hmm. i didn't realize that yeah okay. well i learned something um all right Daphna, this was fun um yeah see you tomorrow sounds good thank you for listening to this episode of the incubator and neonatology review podcast if you like our show please leave us a review on apple podcast or spotify 
We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.